If you haven't got one, flag down Joshua Bishop, a.k.a. the Bubster, Bubby, B-Dog. What else can we say? Bash, brother, something, Bubbykins, Bumpkin, uh, anything else I can embarrass him with? I'm not sure, but I'm trying my best. So apparently... Um, Tim and Ted Sally have, have worn off on me because I have no fill in the blank this morning. Um, I heard them mock me for about a month now uh, about fill in the blanks, and so I don't have any for you today, but I kind of gave you guys an outline uh, about where we're going to, or how we're going to be working through Acts 17 this morning. So let me pray for everybody, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, cold, crisp morning you've given us. We pray, Lord, as we now come to your word in Acts chapter 17, uh, that you would just bless this time of study together, that you would encourage us, uh, you would help us see just just the importance of the gospel and how we are to go out and share it all the time and in every way. And so, Father, uh, impress this upon our hearts this morning, we ask you, and we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 17. Um, you know, Charlie, I'm going to have somebody read, uh, but they can just read it in a big, loud voice, or you can come with a mic. Um, will somebody read for us verses... We'll just start off going verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to walk through it pretty slowly. So somebody read for us verses 1 through 9. Any takers? Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Everyone's pretty excited to read this morning. I can feel it. There's a tension in the room. Tim's going to read for us. All right, Tim. Right up here, Charlie. All right, Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue for the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren for the rulers or to the rulers of the city crying out those who have turned the world upside down have come here too jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of caesar saying there is another king jesus and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things so when they had taken security from jason and the rest they let them go great thanks brother 
I just wanted to have to hear you say Amphipolis. Uh, so yeah, I was nervous to say it, so I just wanted you to get it out of the way. So yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. All right, so right now in Acts chapter 17, we're moving on Paul's missionary journey uh, as he's continuing through Macedonia. So where was Paul just before we're getting to Thessalonica? Do you guys remember? It's in your Bible. It's right before this chapter. Nobody remembers? Lystra? Lystra? Philippi, right? Yeah, we're, we're in Philippi and we're, we're moving on um, to Thessalonica and we pass through Amphipolis um, and what was it again, Tim? Apollo, Apollonia? I, I think Apollonia, yeah. And if you looked on a map as they were moving uh, from Philippi to Thessalonica, you would see that this is a long journey. I mean, like a few hundred miles to walk. That's pretty brutal. And so they actually utilize something called the Via Ignatia. Does anyone know what the Via Ignatia is? The rapid train, sort of, for that time. It was the, the Roman road that they had built. It was, like an, it was like a highway throughout Rome and different places that they had colonized. And they had created this highway that people could use kind of like a straight path to get to certain places. So when we're reading about these two other cities that Paul doesn't do anything in, and you kind of would be like, well, why is he even talking about this? It's because it's showing us the map of which where Paul and Silas and Timothy are traveling. So they're going down this Via Ignatia to get all the way to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is a city that is kind of renowned uh, for its trade, for its commerce, and actually has quite a big Jewish influence. So the Jews were expelled from Rome, and they had to find another city that was Rome-like. And so when they were searching around in that area, they found this place, Thessalonica, that would actually be able to meet all of the needs that they needed. Um, so that's why we have synagogues that were erected in Thessalonica for them to use. And so when we finally get to Thessalonica, um, we see that Paul does his ordinary custom. And what's Paul's ordinary custom when he's on a missionary journey? What was that? Go to the synagogue first, right? But wait, I thought he was a missionary to the Gentiles. Isn't that going to the Jews? Why is he doing that? Why is he going to the Jews first? What? Good. They're not saved either. But did you know that Gentiles were actually a part of Jewish synagogues as well? They would be going through um, the process of becoming a Jew, or they would just be called devout people or God-fearers. And so they would be in the synagogue, they would be Gentiles, and they would be learning in the synagogue about God. So Paul, even though he was uh, the missionary to the Gentiles, he could kind of check both boxes when he went to a synagogue because there would be Gentiles there and they would probably be a more open Gentile than just a random person in the marketplace because they were already going to hear the scriptures read aloud in the synagogue. So Paul goes, which is his custom, to the synagogue whenever he goes into a city. And it says that he preached there, or he taught there, or reasoned in the Sabbath, or in the synagogue, for three Sabbaths in a row. Getting tongue-tied with all the S's here. Um, and he would do that from the scriptures, and he would explain 
and prove to them that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, obviously, this is the most important part of Paul going, right? Because this was the thing that Jews didn't have. They didn't believe in the Messiah, or at least not this one. Uh, They thought that the Messiah had not come yet, and Paul was going into these places And he was reasoning with them that Christ was the person to suffer and die. Now, did he just make an argument or, let me back that up. I don't want to ask that question. Uh, He didn't just go in there just to debate. He went in there and he proved this from what? What does the Bible say he proved it from? What was he using to explain it to them? The scriptures. Right? So Paul didn't just walk into the synagogue and just start making claims. He actually pointed it back to what they would hold as the authority. Right? These are the Jews. They are the people of the scriptures. He's going to point to them. And he's going to point to these scriptures to help them understand it. And again, remember, as we look to the New Testament and hear Paul talking about this, or he's going to explain that Christ needed to suffer and die, He doesn't have the New Testament, right? Because it's being written right now. So what scriptures is he doing this from? The Old Testament. Testament. What, if you guys would have to reason that it was necessary for Christ to die and rise again from the Old Testament, where would you go? Where would you go in your scriptures to help unpack this? Isaiah? Isaiah? Yeah, Isaiah 53, probably, right? The suffering servant. Where else would you go? Genesis 3. three. Good, okay, so we see sin entering in the world and even the uh, proto-Euangelion, right? The first gospel, great. Psalm 22, really good. Yes, Uh, actually, probably a lot of Psalms, right? We can think of Psalm 2 would be a good one, talking about uh, Christ ruling, sitting down at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament, right? They keep talking about this. Would you guys go anywhere else? All right, well, that's, that's good. So if you ever need to have a conversation in a synagogue on the Sabbath, which would be Saturday, those are a couple of verses I want you guys to use, okay? Um, but really, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly what scriptures he was using, But when we look at the New Testament and how they unpack Christ as being necessary to suffer and rise from the dead, they'll typically go to places like Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, and other places. So this is what Paul does. And as Paul does this, um, he he apparently, the Holy Spirit uses him in, in a good way because there were some of them that were actually persuaded to join Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So I love that the gospel here, or uh, Luke's Luke's unpacking of this, he's not just saying, he's he's touching all the bases. He's saying Jews were coming to know God, Gentiles were coming to know God, and he makes it really important for him to say, and leading women were coming to know God. This was revolutionary that he would write something like this down uh, in his account of what was going on to show just how the gospel is for all people, Uh, not just the elite, it's for everyone. Um, So anyways, we see that this was working, Uh, the Lord was using this, and then we see what's what's really, I think should be a good warning to us, and I don't want to spend too much time in here because I'm already spending too much time in here, but we see the Jews become jealous, right? 
And what did the Jews do? This, this just blew my mind as we were, or as I was studying it this week. The Jews were jealous, okay, so they're already sinning. And then what do they do? They go out and they find some wicked men of the rabble. That's a great uh, description there. Wicked men of the rabble. And what do they do? They get these men to help start a mob and turn over the city, right? Like basically have a mob rule go out. Now, just think of that for a moment. These are supposed to be the leaders of God's people, right? They're in the synagogues and they're getting jealous. So they're having a sinful jealousy. And then what they decide to do to honor God is we're gonna go out and we're gonna swoop up some riffraff and we're gonna have them do evil things in the city. What on earth is happening here, right? They're trying to defend God by sinning. Okay, so here's just a quick little side note. It is never appropriate in our attempt to honor God to do it in a sinful way. There's there's your ethics lesson 101, right? It's never appropriate to sin in order to honor God because does that honor God? Of course it doesn't. That's ridiculous. So anyways, it just, that really jumped out at me is that these men who would know better, uh, same men, right? Not the same exact men, but same group uh, of people who would, you know, kill Jesus as a way to try to honor God for some reason. So there we have it. We've, we've got this sinful action in order to honor God. And so what do they do? This riffraff grabs Jason. Now we don't know anything about Jason yet, except for the fact that Jason apparently has been hospitable to uh, Paul and Silas, right? He's been hospitable to these guys. And so since this crowd and the Jews knew this, they went after Jason and they're gonna drag him out in front of the authorities and they're gonna say, these men have turned the world upside down and they've come here also. Jason received them and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king in Jesus, okay? So their claim was that Paul and Silas were turning the world upside down. They're accusing Jason of being hospitable to other Christians and then charged that the Christians were proclaiming a different king. Now, I wrote this question. I don't know if it made it to your notes, but it's in my notes. Uh, And I got this from uh, Al Mohler. He asked the question, those three accusations, are you ready and willing to say, I plead guilty to all three of those things? Are you ready as a Christian, to say, I plead guilty that the gospel is going to turn the world upside down and I want to be a part of it. Are you ready to plead guilty that you're going to harbor people in our society that are going to be looked down upon because they proclaim uh, the gospel? And then finally, are you going to be willing to plead guilty to the fact that you serve another king, the only true king that is in Christ? So this is, this is what's happening. I want you guys to ruminate on that a little bit as you leave today, those three accusations, and if you would be willing to pre- plead guilty to all three of those things. Well, as this happens, um, we see that these authorities are gonna let Jason go, but they're gonna take a deposit, kind of like getting out on bail. Uh, I'm sure there was some sort of necessity for them to say, these guys aren't gonna be able to come back here. Um, and then the brothers whisk them away to Berea. Now, do we all know what the Bereans are kind of honored for? What is the thing that people say about the Bereans? Have you heard this term, be, be a Berean? Go back to your Bible? What, what are we meaning there? 
Search the scriptures for truth. Study the scriptures yourselves. That's exactly what's going on in Berea. So Paul does his thing. He goes with his custom, and he goes into, after leaving Berea, going to Thessalonica, and he's going to go to a synagogue, and he's going to preach, again, the same things he was preaching in Thessalonica. Except these Jews, by account of the scriptures, were more noble. Okay, so in, in being noble, I just wrote in for you guys for a, a few notes there. The, the reality of this Greek word was really just being open to reason, where maybe the other Jews weren't as open to reason because they incited a mob and tried to have them kicked out of the city. These guys were more willing to hear, oh yeah, teach us about this Messiah. Help us understand uh, this Messiah. So I guess we haven't read these verses yet, um, but I'll, I'll read a few of them for you now. So the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the, stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So we see these Jews being of a more noble breed, uh, a Jewish group that are, are more open to reason, more uh, willing to learn. And then we see that they received the word with all eagerness. They were hungry. They wanted the word to be taught to them, right? So uh, we can look at the Greek and it would kind of be translated as receiving it with readiness, willingness, zeal, with exceptional interest. These guys wanted to know God's word. They were interested in what Paul was saying, but they didn't just listen to him and go, okay, Paul seems like a smart guy. I'm gonna follow him. No, they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, quick question, did these Jews have the Old Testament in their house like we do in a, in a, in a Bible form? No, no, they didn't. So how were they examining the scriptures every day? Oral tradition. Oral tradition, okay, good. Synagogue. So these guys were going to the synagogue every day. They wanted to hear Paul Every day, they were that hungry. They're like, yeah, 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 I'm gonna go back and I wanna hear what you're saying because they didn't get to own their own Old Testament for the most part, right? They had to go and hear the scriptures read to them at the synagogue. So they were there and they were coming back and they were ready. So it's not just that they had their own Bible, which for us and our application is a really good thing, right? We have our own Bibles. So if you hear me, Joel, or anybody else who comes up here to preach, we say something, go home, study it, make sure that we're not pulling the wool over your eyes on something. Yes and amen. But I just want us to hear that that wasn't exactly how they did it. They had to come back to the synagogue again and again and again and be discipled, even have oral tradition where other men were discipling them. So just 
be aware of that kind of cultural sensitivity that they couldn't just go home with their scroll and read the Old Testament. They had to come back. They had to make an effort to go and be willing to hear the scripture again and again. And so then we get what the gospel always does. There were many of them who believed, right? They, when they believed, and, and it talks about who? Jews, again. We have, um, uh, who does it say? And Greek women of high standing as well as men. So again, we're seeing this is, this is going out to everybody. But we also see that the gospel is gonna do one of two things. It's either going to create in someone uh, uh, faith, right? The Holy Spirit's gonna use that to create faith in somebody. Go and look at Romans 10. Or it's gonna create some kind of conflict, okay? Raise of hands, when you've shared the gospel, are these typically the two things that you experience when you share the gospel? Yes, either somebody believes or there's some sort of conflict. One, two, okay, I'm gonna, I'm three, thank you, John. Um, I'm, a, I'm hoping we're all doing it, but you might say, well, they just didn't do anything. They were just kind of apathetic, well, what you'll see in apathy is that's still rejecting God, right? That's still conflict that's happening. So the gospel is gonna do one or two things, right? It's going to be life for those who will be living and it's gonna smell like death to those who are dying. Second Corinthians, good place to go and, and hang out for a while to hear stuff like that. Were you, did you say something? True. Oh, true, okay. Ronnie, I can always count on you for those things. But when Paul went to both of these synagogues, his reasoning was on the authority of Scripture, right? That's what he used to start both of these things. He went with the authority of Scripture. That is what he was most concerned about. But then he's, he's whisked away, right? And then he goes to Athens. Who's been to Athens? Anybody had the opportunity to go to Greece? Okay, Courtney and I are the only ones then. Uh, we got the opportunity to go to Greece um, years ago. And uh, when we did, uh, I'm gonna show a picture here in a second, um, I think. There it is. So here's me, goofy dude, uh, right here. And I'm actually standing on what we're about to talk about. Uh, this would be the area of the Areopagus, and then right behind me is gonna be the Acropolis. And I'm not just doing this to do like some sort of brag, but it's gonna help uh, as we kind of understand what we're doing here in, in Acts 17. So now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Okay, that mountain behind me that, I'm, that you can kind of see in the background with columns and stuff like that, that is an entire hill full of idols. <laughs> there are so many, different, um, so many different temples to different gods up there. You, your head would spin. And if you walk around Athens for any period of time, there are just, there's idols everywhere. They're in the buildings. They're uh, still erected in the middle of streets. Um, there's pillars everywhere that have inscriptions um, to different gods that they were worshiping. So Paul is seeing that this city was full of idols, and I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to that. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, his custom, but then he does something different. And the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, we'll come back and ask Joshua Bishop about those guys because I think he's a philosophy guy, um, also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I like how Paul just gets a, or Luke gets a dig on the Athenians right there. He's like, these guys, that's all that they, they want to do in their life. Um, he could probably say the same thing about us with scrolling on our phones. But as we look at this, I, I want to point out five things, okay? So we're going to walk through what Paul saw. We're going to pa- walk through what Paul felt. We're going to walk through what Paul did. We're going to walk through what Paul said. And then we're going to walk through how does Paul... Um, how does, what, what did I say? How does he challenge us, okay? So all five of those categories I ripped off from John Stott because he's way smarter than me, but I did my own work in the middle here. So what did Paul see? Well, Paul saw this. Now, if you look at the Greek, it's really interesting. So idols, idolos, right, is used all throughout the Greek, all throughout the Greek Septuagint, but this time it's only used one time like this, and it's kata, idolos, okay? And you're like, okay, fancy Greek, why do I care? Well, when you look at the word kata, kata means down from something, okay? It means a a position that is deep in something or throughout something. So Athens was down from idols. Now, again, this is like a city of idols, and all down here is going to be Athens, So it's quite literally a city that was downstream from idols. And it was also just sitting in there, kind of stewing in this area of idols, deeply embedded with idols. And so when Paul is going to make his defense right there on the Areopagus, what's right behind him as he does it is the Acropolis and the Parthenon and all of these different temples. So when he says it was full of idols, we quite literally translate that as down from idols. So Athens had all of these idols above them that they were downstream from. So anyways, that's my Greek nerdiness that I got really excited about. So I've given it now to you. Um, So there's your Greek. So this is what Paul saw. But what did Paul feel? Okay. So as Paul saw this, what does the word say? His spirit was provoked within him. Okay, what does it mean to be provoked, guys? Just yell it out. Angry. Pushed. Okay. Anything else? Somebody knows her dictionary, right? Um, Yeah, all of those. Uh, really, right, are helpful to be or become incited or stirred up in one's emotions, feelings, or reactions to both a positive way or a negative way, right? You can be provoked in a good way, uh, although it has kind of a negative connotation, but you can obviously be provoked in a wrong way as well. Um, But Paul here 
is provoked because he has seen that this entire city is overrun with idols. So my question for you this morning is, have you ever felt provoked about the state of idolatry here in Weatherford or in Fort Worth or wherever you live, Springtown, other places? Um, Or are you just comfortable with the idolatry that is happening around you? And you might say, is there idolatry? Oh, yes, sweet friends. It's, it's here too. Uh, it's just not in giant columns uh, and, and, and giant temples, or we might just say these temples are for different things. As I coach my kids in sports, oh boy, that's a bear you can poke around here uh, with idolatry. Just look at the, the massive temples that we've built uh, even for even for junior hires, I walked in and was in a basketball gym that was more high tech. It had automatic unlocking doors for us to get in that somebody could just press on their phone. And they all popped open and we all walked inside uh, to go to basketball yesterday morning after a break. And, and I love basketball and I'm coaching basketball. I'm not saying that basketball in itself is an idol, but we can certainly treat it as one. So anyways, there are, there are many other things that you could point to. Um, abortion, you could point to, uh, are, are just our nauseating consumption of media and things like that. Uh, that could be uh, idolatry for us too. So anyways, Paul is provoked. I hope and I pray that we would be provoked, that we would stop being just okay with everything, but that our souls within us would become provoked. Okay, so this is how Paul felt. Now, what did Paul do? right? Paul, he, he had asked that Timothy and Silas would, would come to him, that he could be with them, and then this dude can't wait any longer. Like, he's like, forget it. I wanted you guys to come, but I ain't staying here any longer. I'm not going to sit in this house. I'm going to get out, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to share the gospel. So that's what he did. He didn't wait, number one, and then number two, he reasoned, okay? So he went to the synagogues, which is what he typically would do, Uh, But then Athens, he like bumps it up another notch, right? He goes to the marketplace. And when he goes to the marketplace, he's not just looking for Jews. He's looking for anybody that walks by him. When I think of this, I think of our brother, Ralph. Uh, Ralph Hull in Gunnison, Colorado. That guy, I feel like has that kind of, he just, he has that thing that he's like, nah, man, I'm not good here. I'm just gonna go over here. I'm gonna start preaching the gospel to this person. Now, I'm not saying that this is um, some sort of, uh, I'm not trying to say that, the God, or that, that Luke is telling us exactly how to go out and do it. So uh, maybe Ralph would like street preaching. I know we've got street preachers in here as well, but that's not all that's being talked about when he goes to the marketplace because this word reasoning, he's actually talking about conversing with somebody else, discussing, arguing, informing, and instructing someone. Um, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not a street preacher. That's, God has not gifted me with that. Or maybe I'm, uh, I just need to work on that muscle. But what I love doing is finding other people and just asking them a question and then continuing to have that conversation with that person or asking them if I can pray for them and watch how that's gonna move us into a different direction. And so I think, you know, when we hear about this in the marketplace, we can become kind of like, oh, I could never do that. I'm not gonna do that. Well, maybe you just need to go hang out with Nick and Nick can disciple you up and how to do some of that street preaching or maybe that's just not where your gifting is and you would much rather have a conversation with somebody who's checking you out at the grocery store or at basketball practice with the other parents while you're waiting or whatever your favorite sport 
list here, right? When you're there with other people that you can spark these conversations because you're provoked. You can't just keep it in any longer. Stop being comfortable. I'm preaching this to, my, to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you. Um, but then he goes to the Areopagus. Now that's because we have these Epicurean and Stoics. Who's familiar with Epicurean philosophy and Stoicism? Josh. Shaking his head. He's in great books right now. By the way, he'll talk to you about them. He loves the great books. They're wonderful. And he's, I love you, buddy. He really is very sharp. If you guys want a conversation about this stuff, he's good at that. But I just wanted to make him feel uncomfortable. So I'm going to give you really quick. This is how John Stott helps us. And I'm going to sprint because we haven't even gotten to Mars Hill yet. But the Epicureans um, were founded by Epicurus. Wow interesting. Um, And these guys considered the gods to be so remote as to take no interest in, have no influence on human affairs. The world was due to chance, a random concourse of atoms, and there would be no survival uh, of death and no judgment. So human beings should pursue pleasure, especially the serene enjoyment of a life detached from pain, passion, and fear. Kind of sounds like we live in an Epicurean society right now. Uh, We don't want to think about what happens after death. We don't much care about it. uh, And we'd rather just focus on our passions and pleasures. Okay? Now, that's the Epicureans. When we look at the Stoics, uh, the Stoics were called the philosophers of the porch. uh, And that's because uh, there was this painted colonnade next to the Agora where they taught and it looked like a porch. And their founder, Zeno, would be there and that's where he would teach his classes. Now, They acknowledged that there was a supreme God, but in a pantheistic way. And when I say that, I mean like everything is God, man. The trees are God. The water's God, you know, and I use that voice because I'm from California and that's how we talk. Um, But that is uh, what Stoics believed, uh, that the world was determined by fate, that human beings must pursue their duty resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason, however painful this might be, and develop their own self-sufficiency. To to uh, oversimplify this, um, it was characteristic of Epicureans to emphasize chance, escape, and enjoyment of pleasure, and of the Stoics to emphasize fatalism, submission, and endurance of pain. Okay, so those those are our two people that Paul are talking with right now, and they go, who is this? And what I love is that they say, what does this babbler wish to say? And I've got like six minutes, so I'm going to say this, and then we're going to skip to the rest of what I need to say. But a babbler, it's not just like, he's not just talking trash on this guy, um, although he is talking trash. That's, that's what these guys are saying. A babbler was quite literally a bird that would pick up seeds uh, in, in kind of like the sewer or in the gutter. And so what they're saying is, this guy doesn't have any ideas for himself. He's just, he's just kind of cherry-picking from other people, and he's trying to sound smart in front of everybody. Who is this babbler? And then the other guys thought, oh, he's talking about two different gods here. He's talking about the God Jesus, and he's talking about the God, the resurrection. So they're thinking he's talking about foreign divinities. So they end up bringing him to the Areopagus, okay, which was what I was standing on. And the Areopagus literally is translated, 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 the hill of Aries, and that's why we understand it as Mars Hill. So if anybody has ever done CC, uh, they, they sing the song, Greek gods, Roman gods, and then they would go through all the ones, right? Well, Aries and Mars 
are the two separate gods. One is the god for Greek, for war, and then Mars is the Roman god for war. And so that's why we understand this place as Mars Hill. So he gets brought to this Areopagus, which is kind of like a panel uh, that is doing judgment. Um, And it used to hold a really, um, like had a ton of sway in them. And at this point, they're mostly uh, gathered there to talk about different religions. So they would give you kind of the green light if you could teach your religion in the area, or they would say, no, no, you can't teach that stuff here. Now, that seems silly because they literally had an idol to an unknown God, which is what Paul's going to use in his defense. So he gets brought to this group at the Areopagus. And typically the Areopagus would give you a topic and they would give you a day to prepare. Who knows if Paul had this um, kind of uh, help to begin with, but when he does, we have a very helpful apologetic to how to engage other people. But what you'll see is that there's no specific claim of Jesus in his talk. He talks about a man that God has appointed for the judgment, this man that he brought up from the resurrection. So we gather, us as Christians, that this is Christ who he's talking about. That's clear to us. But for these guys, it's not. And so a lot of times, what will be brought up is that this speech is the best way to contextualize to a non-believing culture. And I would just tell you, I think actually that, I think that's helpful, but what we're actually seeing here is that Paul has been brought in to make a defense of what he's teaching. And so he's defending what he's teaching. So he's already been talking about Jesus and the resurrection, but now he's gonna talk about who is God, okay? So that's the main thing that Paul goes through here. I'm gonna let you read the rest of this on your own, and I'm gonna talk to you about what Paul is going to emphasize in what he said. So, Paul is going to immediately address their world view, right? He says, and when you read it, and you'll probably remember this, I observe that you are very religious. So he's talking to this group who don't believe in Christ, and he's not jumping to scripture, right? Which is what he did with the Jews. Now here, he's, he's trying to make a bridge by talking about their worldview. I perceive that you're religious. I've passed along many of these idols that you are worshiping. But then Paul's going to make a bridge. He says, I found an altar to the unknown God. Okay, and that's when he makes the shift to saying, it's not this unknown God, it is the God that I'm going to talk to you about, right? Definite article, the God, the one God, the only God. And then he just makes all the Epicureans and all the Stoics angry because he's gonna start punching holes in everything. He says this God, he's gonna talk about different doctrines of God. And the first one he talks about is creation. The one who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples, nor is he served by human hands, nor does he need anything. He's completely self-sufficient, right? Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. At this point, the Epicureans' heads are exploding because they're like, no, 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 God just sent this all off and it's kind of random now, right? And, And for the Stoics, their heads exploded because they're saying, wait a minute, there's one God and it's not just kind of this all God, everything's God, world God kind of thing. Yes, He's really emphasizing creation as the first thing to unpack who God is. Then he moves to self-sufficiency. He moves to sovereignty. And then he even moves to the omnipresence of God, which is when he starts talking about that he's near. And that uh, it says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, and that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from any of us, right? And that's because God's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. So now the Stoics are going, okay, well, I can get onto that. That sounds cool, and I can kind of dig that, but he's already made them so mad with everything else. And then Paul, again, making a bridge, is going to quote from the hymn of Zeus. Did you guys know that? This is actually a hymn of Zeus that he's quoting from, or at least scholars will, will make very long and lengthy arguments about why in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. But he's saying, you got it wrong. It's not Zeus, it's the God. And this God, we are all offspring of. And he shouldn't be worshipped by your imagination. So now Paul is moving from making this bridge to pointing out their sin. You are creating idols. Second commandment, right? You're creating idols of silver and gold and all of these different things. And so now he's speaking to that law that's written on everyone's heart, the moral law. He's going to be pointing them to that and saying, listen, the times of ignorance have been overlooked, but now you must repent of this type of worship and worship the one true God because the judgment is coming. And then he points us back to Christ. And this judgment is going to be by the man that God raised from the dead. Now, the resurrection, right, just incited uh, the Stoics, I'm sure, maybe not, but that's probably who got mad at this point because they didn't believe in it. Um, and they said, some of them said, we will hear you again on this, which is like the politically correct way of saying, get out of here, bub, like we're done with you and we want to hear you anymore. And then they had others that just straight up mocked him, right? Okay, resurrection, that's funny. Um, so after that, Paul is dismissed from this council of the Areopagus. Now, what I think is really cool is again, we see that the gospel does two things. It either creates somebody to have belief in Christ or it pushes them away. And we get both of these happening again. He gets pushed away by some of these philosophers, but then we see men joined him and believed. And also was Dionysius, who was a part of the Areopagus. I can't even talk anymore. Areopagus, right? He was an Areopagite. Um, and so he actually leaves his council to follow after Paul. And Eusebius, who is a a Christian historian actually says that Dionysius, although I don't know if this is 100%, right? This might be just Eusebius getting a little carried away, says he was the first bishop of the church in Athens, okay? So we see this, this new convert then going off to be discipled and then maybe we'll find out in heaven if he actually was that first bishop or not because we don't hear that anywhere else. And a woman named Demarius and others with them. All right, Guys, I flew through that. There was much meat on the bone that I left. Um, but go home this afternoon, and I want you to read that stirring, um, that stirring lecture that Paul gives and, and pointing them to their sin and their need to repent and, and, and finally putting their trust in Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us. I'll be up here for any questions, concerns, or cries of outrage. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we learned about Paul's mission and his mission specifically in Athens this morning, God, that all of our hearts would be provoked, that we cannot stand idly by, but that we would be like Paul, and whether it be in church, 
whether it be in the marketplace, whether it be before we get called to a city council, that we could not help but proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether that be through uh, street preaching, whether that be through evangelism, whether that be through personal evangelism with family and friends. Father God, give us opportunities. And Lord, more importantly, we know that you give us so many. Open our eyes that we would be provoked and stirred to have those conversations with those around us in a world that is down from idols. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.